0: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. We're bringing you one of our favorite episodes from the archives today, a conversation I had back in May of last year with Brooklyn Public Defender Scott Heckinger. Scott is a fantastic explainer and kind of a witness at the front lines of the justice system. If you're on Twitter and you're not following Scott, you're really missing out. But what got me thinking about this conversation again was the release of Ava DuVernay's remarkable series on Netflix, When They See Us. It's a dramatized account of the Central Park Five, or really the exonerated Five. The five black teenagers wrongly arrested and then imprisoned for the rape of a white woman in New York City's Central Park in 1989. The series shows in really painful detail how prosecutor and police power is used to force false confessions out of these five pretty defenseless teens. And their story might be an extreme one, but it's by no means an isolated example. Most of the situations Scott and I talk about in this episode concern far less serious charges, but what comes across, I think, is how the system, with prosecutors at its head, Uses a combination of coercion and incentives to get what it wants out of defendants. So here is that discussion with Scott Heckinger, the Director of Policy at Brooklyn Defender Services. I started by asking him to describe a typical day in the life of a public defender.
1: What is a normal day like for a public defender? You know, one of the kind of incredible things about doing the work that we do as public defenders is that no day uh, is ever the same or practice is is as diverse as the client base that we represent. Of course, our clients are um, all uh, unable to afford representation. And unfortunately, um, whether by design or this is how it's become, from certain neighborhoods and are of mostly people of color. So I I meet my clients at this moment of true crisis. They've been taken off uh, the streets. They've been taken from their community, from their jobs, from people in need of caretaking. And they're facing this really momentous occasion. Most people think about that first appearance arraignments as this administrative necessity. But by the time that I meet my clients, they've not only already gone through the process of of arrest, but the prosecution has already decided what, whether they're going to be charged and what they're going to be charged with, and come up with a number, and they're already um, set up for the potential of bail being set. So major decisions have already been made and are about to be made that really dictate the direction, shape of a case, the ultimate, frankly, outcome of a case. So the stakes are really high for your clients, and I mean, one of the
0: larger questions I have is, how fair a fight is it, in a sense, between prosecutors and um, public defense attorneys? But uh, as a way of maybe getting at that larger question, why don't we walk a little bit through the um, sort of decision points of of the process, decision points for prosecutors, decision points for your your clients as well. So if we start with the charging decision, that's one that that John Pfaff really focuses on, obviously this extent to which prosecutors are really acting as the gatekeepers to the system, uh, whether to charge people, what level to charge them at. Could you talk a little bit about how that power plays itself out in the cases and the lives of your clients?
1: The charging decision, that decision whether to let a case come in to court in the first place, and the decision on if you're going to let it come in, what are you going to charge the person with is perhaps the most monumental and, and determinative decision uh, that's made in a case. There's two different classes of charging that I think it's important for people to know. It's really like misdemeanors and felonies. Uh, misdemeanors, low-level crimes, and there are different issues, and felonies, more serious crimes, and there are different issues and impacts that, that kind of intersect with each one of these two types of charging. With misdemeanors, I, I like to think about it more as Uh, as should we be charging these cases at all the you know the majority Of misdemeanor cases, or what we call quality of life crimes, or crimes of poverty, they're sometimes known as. They're the most common arrests. They're the stop and frisks. They're marijuana possession. They're low-level drug possession. You're uh, stopped and frisked, find There's a crack pipe uh, found on you. You're caught sleeping where you're not supposed to. That's misdemeanor trespass. You jump the turnstile because 275 is actually a lot of money for the clients who I serve. Uh, That's an A misdemeanor punishable by a year in jail, uh, driving on a suspended license because you can't afford to pay the fines, that's a misdemeanor. And so I think the decision point there is, should prosecutors be charging those cases at all, especially given what we know about the overwhelming number or disproportionate number of people of color who are being charged? So marijuana, for example, 18,000 arrests in New York City in 2016 and 17, and 86% were people of color. Knowing that, knowing that both the fiscal and the human cost of charging these cases couldn't prosecutors, and the answer is they could, um, decide to not prosecute any of them. By doing that, they would send a strong message to the NYPD, our police forces around the country, uh, that this is not only an arrest that's not worthwhile to, have to be brought into court, but it's also being carried out, these arrest practices, in a way that is, on its face, racist. When you also get into crimes of addiction and crimes of mental health, crimes of poverty, you gotta be thinking about the fact that our system You can't deter poverty with the threat of punishment, or you can't deter poverty with the threat of an arrest. So I think there's an opportunity for prosecutors with misdemeanors and a large class of them to rethink bringing them into the criminal justice system to begin with. Yes, there's a role to play in Albany and legislatures around the state to decriminalize these things. But prosecutors can stop prosecuting them tomorrow. When it comes to felonies, it's less of a question of of whether to charge. It's more of a question of what we should be charging. So I'll give you an example, and this ties into the conversation around violence, right? If you think about burglary, people tend to think about really you know, violent, intense crimes, home invasions. The majority of them are not that. The majority are people going into lobbies uh, who are homeless, who are in, in need, and stealing packages. And I'm not condoning that behavior, but is that a C violent felony? Is that a violent felony where the mandatory minimum is three and a half? When a prosecutor makes a decision to charge a case at the beginning, three things happen. Number one, it's far more likely, the higher the felony and whether it's a felony at all, that bail will be set. Number two, depending on the level of the felony, mandatory minimums will kick in, which we know drives case outcomes uh, at least as much as as pretrial detention, if not more, the fear of going to trial and facing that mandatory minimum. Three, it also takes away what little discretion the ju- judges at this point already have to overrule the prosecutor's office and order treatment over their objection. And so all of these decisions are being made before I've even met my client. So d- to what extent do you think
0: prosecutors are simply, when it comes to making these charging decisions, simply uh, applying the law, uh, you know, calling balls and strikes, to use a famous metaphor, or do you see them as, as their discretion is such that they're in a sense making the law every time?
1: My sense is that there is a practice in most DA offices to charge the top crime that is possible under the facts alleged. The thought is let's charge the max and we can work our way backwards if you know the the, the facts play out differently or you know we have some more time to kind of think through this. What we see though is that, in the most common felony cases, we know, as practitioners who practice all the time, how these cases play out. You know, 16 Only 16% of violent felonies that are charged as violent felonies in New York ultimately end in prison. Most of my robberies, most of the robberies that come through my desk are young kids stealing other kids' cell phones, bullying behavior that elsewhere you might get a suspension. They're charged as violent felonies. And if prosecutors just took a slightly different approach and really thought critically about the fact that those cases not only are not violent, but they often, more, than, more often than not, end in misdemeanors or wind up getting dismissed, um, that initial decision to charge, which then has an impact on bail, would be very different and would have a big impact on the course of cases and administration to justice overall.
0: So to pick up on bail, which I guess is the next decision point along along the line here, obviously a huge amount of focus and discussion right now on bail reform and lots of actual reforms being announced. But what are you seeing on, on the ground in terms of bail decisions as a
1: public defender? So it's kind of amazing that bail has become the hot button issue it has been amazing in 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 the sense that no one was talking about it five years ago six years ago and through public attention through newspaper articles through unfortunately really major tragedies like the tragedy of caliph browder it's become this issue that's everyone that everyone's talking about um what's less known and what's less talked about is the role that prosecutors have in whether bail set at all, most people think, and it's true, that judges have the power, and they do. They're the ones who ultimately set decide whether to set bail or not. Uh, but prosecutors can decide do decide whether or not to ask for bail and or uh, consent to release or consent to release with supervised release. Um, they also have the discretion to you know about how much bail to ask for. What tends to happen on the ground is that in the time it takes me to read just the bare bones criminal court complaint and, you know, if the person has been arrested before uh, their criminal record, uh, the DA has already made, the DA in the arraignments has already made their decision within four to five minutes on whether bail is going to be set. The bail statute is more than just the charge, the seriousness of the charge and their criminal record. It's about uh, their life circumstances. It's about ability to pay. It's about not just what the charge is, but the strength of the evidence which frankly no one really knows at the at the start of a the case these are all considerations that the judge should take into account but these are considerations that also prosecutors could take into account and so I go back and I, I meet my clients and I find out a more complicated story always and we tell that story but what we find is that the prosecutors asks ask for bail is what determines whether bail is going to be set occasionally I wouldn't even say occasionally. Frequently, the judges do overrule the prosecutor's bail request. But on felonies especially, if the prosecutor asks for high bail, that's really, you know, sets the tone for that particular bail application. So in terms of reality versus promises on top, look, in Brooklyn, we're seeing a difference. You know, uh, Dia Gonzalez, back in April of 2017, said that he was going to stop asking for bail uh, in misdemeanors or in cases where they weren't going to be seeking jail time. And frankly, we are seeing a difference. Uh, they are consenting to release in more cases. We want to see that get to zero. We don't think that anyone at a baseline should be jailed for their inability to pay you know, a sum of money. No one should be in jail because they're too poor to buy their freedom. And that's the reality of what, you know, of, of what we're seeing. So on the ground, there's, there's room for hope. But I also think there's a lot of room for uh, prosecutors to um, think more critically, not just about misdemeanors, and not just about nonviolent felonies and drug cases, but also about uh, more serious felonies, including violent ones.
0: Does it happen often that people uh, plead guilty to something they might prefer contesting simply because they know they're not going to be able to Pay the bail. Um, they want to avoid uh, incarceration pretrial. I mean, I'm just wondering to the extent that happens, how that must feel as a public defender.
1: It it hurts as a public defender. I can I can tell you it. it I was going to say it hurts more as a client, but in that moment, th- my clients are not thinking about the long term consequences, which are going to hit them when they plead guilty. And so, I, I actually I want to. There's two different ways that, that bail influences guilty pleas. Number one, we see a lot of guilty pleas on that day of arraignment, facing the prospect of bail being set. So bail hasn't even been set yet. Someone's charged with the crime, uh, low-level misdemeanor, and they're given an offer of time served. And they might have been stopped and frisked unconstitutionally, they might be innocent, but when they're given the opportunity to uh, you know, go home versus yes, suck it up, plead guilty to maybe something they didn't do or not be able to challenge that unconstitutional stop and search. It's no question. They need to get home. They need to get home to their jobs, their kids, uh, to their you know elderly parents. Uh, they need to keep their housing. A lot of our clients, most of our clients live in um, you know affordable housing or family shelters. If they don't show up, they'll lose their place in, in their housing. It's a no-brainer. And so, yes, the clients bristle as they get those questions, are you pleading Guilty because you're, in fact, guilty as anyone forcing you to plead guilty. Um, but it's really a no-brainer for them. Even if, though, they were released, and this gets back to charging, even if bail wasn't even part of the equation, it's kind of too late at that point once they're in the system. Because the thought of having to come back to court to contest that case, even if they could, is punishment in, a, in and of itself. Our clients are busy. They've got a lot of stuff going on. And uh, the process of coming to court is a horrific one. You have to take a whole day off from work. You're packed in a courtroom with, unfortunately, mostly people of color. You're not, uh, the people that look like you, you're not allowed to even read. And so you have to watch this process. The of process people, is the punishment. The process is the punishment you know, going up. So yes, like we see people plead guilty on, the, on that same day. And once someone takes that plea, they're also, legal barriers are erected that make it impossible for them to even sue for false arrest or malicious prosecution. And so in that process of, of prosecutors allowing the case to come through the system, it has enormous consequences to the individual um, and also just uh, the, the cycle of arrests and prosecutions. Obviously once someone's actually locked up on bail that they can't afford every day that they're in adds to that desire to get out. Think about a time that you've ever been homesick. You know, you're 13 years old, you're in camp, and just having that date certain, knowing that you're going home on a certain date, uh, there's a lot of power in that. And so someone who's facing a mandatory minimum, getting that offer of a year and a half, even if it means them staying in for additional six months, there's some certainty in that. and And that also encourages people to plead guilty as well.
0: So I think my master plan is kind of working here, and we are managing to really start to fill in the picture of just how fair a kind of adversarial contest it is between prosecutors and defense attorneys or public defenders Um, a major issue in that in that question of the adversarial relationship is uh, this question of discovery basically how much and when are prosecutors obliged to hand over evidence to the defense this is again another area where there's been a lot of focus reforms announced chief judge new york state janet DiFiore made it a priority of her state of the judiciary just recently but how do you see that issue playing out again in your cases for your clients and and how is it changing if at all
1: new york state this uh, so-called progressive bastion has one of the four worst most unjust discovery laws in the entire country Under New York law, prosecutors can withhold the most critical evidence until the day that trial starts. And so uh, in the few cases that do go to trial, it's trial by ambush. How can you prepare for trial if you don't have the evidence? And so that leads ultimately to wrongful convictions. It leads to people going to trial thinking they have a case and ultimately getting convicted. But the biggest impact of the fact that defense attorneys and defendants and our, and our clients don't get discovery, is that they can't make informed decisions upfront in deciding whether they're going to risk going to trial or plea. And that fear of the unknown, combined with the risk of going to trial with mandatory minimums, which harken back all the way just to the charging decision, plus pre-trial detention, creates this perfect combination of forces that make even people who are innocent plead guilty. The reality is that our adversarial system is based upon this idea that through mutual testing of the evidence, the truth can come out. And um, so, so, when you mentioned Janet Difiore, her she did say discovery was a priority, but she just simply ordered the prosecution to do what they already they already should be doing, which is turn over Brady material. It needs to be more than that. We should be getting. Um, as much discovery and evidence as the prosecutors have as early as possible. Um, It doesn't just help the innocent, as we've been talking about, it also helps people who may have committed the crimes make more informed decisions. It also helps me as a public defender negotiate with prosecutors for fairer outcomes. There, there are these things that were set up the uh, tough on crime decades 70s 80s 90s same time that everything was being criminalized and mandatory minimums were kicking in discovery laws were changing all these like all these laws came into force that had the effect of transitioning power away from judges discretion and power away from judges and putting it pretty much solely into the hands of prosecutors at the expense of you know, I think justice, but also the expense of, of fairness and, um, and balance between defendant and prosecutor.
0: We've already touched on this a, a little bit, but given the fact that uh, this sort of shocking number of 95% of guilty pleas result from plea bargains, which, uh, I think we've mentioned, so very far from this sort of law and order concept, uh, the TV show about how about justice is, is, is meted out. Plea bargains are often referred to as this kind of black box process, but as a public defender, you are inside that black box, so
1: to speak. The conversations, the kind of the plea bargaining process is, you know, the, the way that I see it is, you know, a conversation. But it's a conversation, this is the critical point, that is informed by these forces that are out of the defendant's control and that are in the prosecutor's control. Charging. So what is that mandatory minimum? Now, John talked about the fact that we have no way of knowing how often mandatory minimums are threatened as part of the plea bargaining process. I can tell you that it's in 100% of cases. That does not mean that a prosecutor, this is very rarely, a prosecutor is going to say, you know how much time this person's facing if you don't take our plea. It's understood. It is the, forget the elephant in the room, it is the, it's the entire room. Uh, that is the reality that we're operating in, okay? And so, you know, we're having this discussion, but All sides know, if we go to trial, that's an enormous risk to take. Number two, we're having this conversation while in many cases, especially in the violent felonies, That that person is sitting in jail, subject to horrific violence, um, away from his family, away from jobs, his bills are piling up, his family uh, is having a tough time visiting him because he's sitting on Rikers Island. So there's enormous pressure to just make the pain go away. So there's this conversation that's happening that can sometimes be productive, but at the end of the day, my client, uh, there's so many forces that are pushing that client to want to just make the pain end, whether they're guilty, whether they're innocent, whether they could potentially get a better plea, if they were, had been out. So that that process is, is an attempt to have an informed conversation about what we're trying to accomplish here, but really just infused by pressures that um, work in favor of prosecutors and in favor of more convictions and greater jail time. So when you're having these conversations, these negotiations with Prosecutors,
0: uh, by which I mean like the line assistant district attorneys, the line prosecutors. Do you have a sense that th- you, they're operating with a different conception of justice than you're operating from? Um, I mean, are we talking about people who are just reflexively um, tough on crime? Uh, no, my sense is it it's not that. So is it, is it an issue of a, the kind of culture of prosecution?
1: Yeah, I'm shaking my head. You know, I it's hard to say I'm not inside their heads. I'm not a prosecutor. I do feel like at least the newer class so, you know, the, the newer class of DAs or pro- uh, assistant district attorneys, prosecutors, folks that have been coming in in the last 10 years, especially in New York, they're progressive. And I feel like I can have a really informed conversation with them. Um, some of the challenge comes And this is throughout the country uh, when they need to get, you know, that approval for leniency. And that approval has to come from uh, folks who have been there for longer, who are more tough on crime. And the issue about, you know, where does that come from and how does that office culture change? Because like you said, it's the really line prosecutors that are making those thousands of decisions every day. It's the, the top prosecutor that's making that one decision that could have an impact on those thousands of decisions. So how do you change that? And I think, you know, it, it takes a lot of courage. And that courage comes from, I think, a growing sense right now and is able to come from now, a growing sense now that, that people on all sides of the political spectrum um, believe that mass incarceration um, is a major problem, that believe we are spending far too much on, uh, on people and uh, locking up people and far too little on actually addressing the root causes. So I think it's really important for folks to be able to, send the message to prosecutors, the top prosecutors, that we are not only are in support of smarter policies from charging to your bail requests to evidence policies to mandatory minimums to plea deals to, to alternatives to incarceration and mercy and redemption, but we're going to stand behind you if, even if, in that rare case, something goes wrong. So
0: when it comes to this idea of people more generally paying a lot more attention and understanding the stakes of what's going on with prosecutors' decisions and the criminal justice system, it does seem like that is happening right now to a quite remarkable degree. I mean, I feel like almost every day there's a new DA race that's in play that nobody was expecting to be in play. Do you share my assessment of this sort of remarkable uh, moment? Do you find it exciting? Do you find it hopeful?
1: I find it exciting and hopeful. I'm not banking, you know, everything on it. It's one piece of it. It is a large piece of it. I'm hopeful just at a baseline by the fact that people are focusing on the process in court as kind of a critical piece to this mass incarceration problem, as, as John said people tend to focus on the flashy, the sexy stuff. So, you know, the, the police um, and police violence and stop and frisk and extrajudicial killings at the front end and the back end focus on, you know, length of prison time and parole and, and probation and state supervision, uh, state supervision. But what happens in the middle is really the most important stuff. It's what both reinforces the beginning and drives what happens at the end. And so, just at a baseline, the fact that people are talking about prosecutors and the power that they have, and starting to pay attention, it's an extremely exciting moment. And how how do we get here? It's because the space has been created by crime rates going down. Um, so, a crime and the fear of crime receding from debates and giving elected officials like prosecutors, more room to be courageous and to talk about soft on crime policies without, without being so afraid of political suicide. It also comes from people starting to pay attention to more complex aspects of the system. Uh, I think that started with bail, Bail was once seen as a really kind of wonky um, lawyer's only no issue, and, and now it's become something that people can really ma- wrap their heads around. And I think prosecutor power is, is really the same. When you think about you know charging, it sounds really technical. Most people previously, and it's probably still, don't think that it's a big part of the process and know how important it is. But when you break it down and you explain it, it becomes tangible, um, and people feel like they can actually make make a difference. Um, with bail, the same thing. With discovery, every time I, I change the word discovery to evidence, and I talk about the role that prosecutors have, it's this, like, you know, this hedge sh- this immediate head shake. So what are we doing? Like, how can we change this? And what's the pushback? And I think the fact that there is a player in the system that really can control the way that these laws operate to drive mass incarceration, either one way or another, is really empowering for people. It's not again the be all end all, you know, it's not it's not changing the law, it's not decriminalization, it's not taking away mandatory minimums. But there is a sense of both a targeted you know, a targeted person who can actually do something about it and can do it relatively quickly like we're seeing in Philly. And so there's not a little, I am not only excited about it, but I'm excited by the fact that we're talking about it and I'm excited by the excitement that it's generating across the country. Well, Scott, it's very clear you have a very demanding and I think
0: to this city, very important job. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, come in and talk with me today. I appreciate you having me, thanks so much. So I've been speaking with Scott Heckinger. Scott is the senior staff attorney and director of policy at Brooklyn Defender Services. And this has been the second episode in our series on prosecutors with more to come. You can hear the first episode that was with uh, John Pfaff that we've referenced a few times. That's at our website, courtinnovation.org, or better yet, by subscribing to New Thinking wherever you get your podcasts. Technical support today provided by Bill Harkins. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at quivernyc.com. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins.
1: Thanks for listening.